Hi, I'm Dr. Anjali Forber-Pratt, and you're listening to ADA Live. Yo. Hi, let's roll. Let's go. Hi, everybody. On behalf of the Southeast ADA Center, the Burton Blatt Institute at Syracuse University and the ADA National Network. I want to welcome you to ADA Live. My name is Barry Whaley. I'm the director of the Southeast ADA Center. And as a reminder, listening audience, if you have questions about the Americans with Disabilities Act, you can use our online form anytime at adalive.org. We're so very pleased to welcome as our guest today, Dr. Anjali Forber-Pratt. She is the director of the National Institute on Disability, Independent Living and Rehabilitation Research, um, also known as NIDILRR or NIDLR. Dr. Forber Pratt assumed this important post in May of 2021, and I can't believe that it has almost been a year, Anjali. Uh, but we are so excited to have this opportunity to talk with you today to learn more about the important work of NIDLR as well as your thoughts on our challenges moving forward. I also want to welcome as our guest, Dr. Peter Blank, a university professor and chairman of the Burton Blatt Institute at Syracuse University. So Peter, I'm going to turn the show over to you. Well, thank you, Barry and Dr. Forber Pratt, Anjali. It's uh, fantastic to have you with us. I guess a few things have happened since you took over Neidler <laughs> in the last year. Uh, just a few, just a few. From an international crisis to an international crisis. Well, you are, you are the person to be in the spot you're at. I'm a believer in many ways in destiny. I remember President Obama had you as a champion of change many years ago when we were all working under the Obama administration. And you certainly have been that. You have been a champion of change. You've been a leader, an advocate an academic, a Paralympian medalist. I guess the first question I have to ask, did any of that prepare you for what you have to deal with today as the director of NIDLR, the premier institute on disability issues, which of course, as we all know, the elephant in the room is facing terrific challenges in the community that we both live in and work with. Absolutely. You know, I think that when I reflect on on just my experience growing up for as long as I can remember with a disability and all of those experiences kind of combined into one have really made me the disability advocate that I am today and have made me very well positioned as a researcher and as a, the director of, of NIDLR. I think that that each and every single one of those experiences, both as a researcher, as a competitive athlete, as an individual with a disability, have really shaped and provided me with a strong foundation. You know, Anjali, of course, Neidler is not only a beacon in the United States, but it's a beacon of hope and inspiration around the world. Uh, Neidler, most graciously, and we are honored to, to for example, uh, work on the Southeast ADA, which is, of course, one of Neidler's projects. And um, the amount of interest and concern we've had from all over the country just recently with involved with the Ukraine crisis has really reflected the unity of people with disabilities 
not only in the United States, but across the globe. I'm sure you have experienced that already. And how would you convey that experience, that really um, motivating advocacy that you're talking about as the leader of this premier institution? I think that, that first and foremost, leading Nidler to be the, the, the on the forefront of disability research and rehabilitation research for our country is, is so very important. But it's also important for us to be a voice internationally and to, to help to cultivate the energy and the importance of disability research and, you know, and, and these, these important conversations more broadly. The other piece is that advocacy runs long and deep throughout throughout all of that. And I think that from my perspective, advocacy, whether that's disability advocacy, whether it's advocating for disability research, whether it's advocating for sharing of um, people with disabilities, their stories, all of that, all of those advocacy elements are critically important. We know that individuals really gravitate towards hearing people's stories. That's what makes the research come to life. one of my earliest memories of outwardly being an advocate. I was in the first grade and I filmed a video called I Can Do Different Things. And then I went in person to the big old middle school to be my big brother, who was in the fifth grade at the time, to be my big brother's class project. And I still take credit for his A that he earned on that project. (laughs) I mean, I, I think I might have earned him that A. But it was really fun to teach others about disability and to explain the challenges and the solutions. And that just became such an integral part of who I am, even at at those early ages. And I see those pieces of advocacy in the work that I'm doing now as director of Nidler, both nationally and internationally. And that, of course, is so needed now. You know, I had some questions about the history of Nidler and the mission and so forth. But frankly, I think we and our listeners will learn about that as we speak. What I was interested in is we've all had to reinvent ourselves basically in the last three years. Things that were unimaginable really five years ago in the way we went about doing business. How do you bring that to your agency? What do we have to do to make that reinvention? at Nidler and more broadly in the disability community in light of what's going on today. Yeah, you know, and I think an, an interesting overlay on this, which which is, I, I think, important perspective, is that coming into this role, I still, to this day, have not met all of my own staff in person. And so that's just one, one example of an element of how the pandemic and how the world of work has, has really changed. When I think about that experience for myself, it also amplifies how I have, I personally have really approached to these these changes that that we all were thrust into, which is to really listen, to really listen to my incredible staff and to observe day-to-day operations who, at the time when I came in, were being led by Dr. Christy Hill, who is my deputy and also known as my right hand. I also 
continue to ask a lot of questions. I think that sometimes it's, you know, why why is, has this been, been done this way? Or is there a reason we approach it this way? And I think that that, that that natural curiosity is also something that just living in a pandemic has made us all question, like, why were we traveling around to attend these conferences in person when now, you know, two years into this, we've been able to come up with workable hybrid ways that are also accessible for individuals with disabilities. And in some cases, maybe more accessible than running the risk of traveling with a disability and and having personal medical equipment damaged potentially by airlines or just having to deal with personal care needs on the road. And so in some ways, some aspects of of our world in this hybrid or virtual environment have become more accessible. It's not to say that there aren't also challenges that have come up from this virtual, you know, changes and change in terms of how we've approached work. But there are also been some significant wins. Part of this new era we're living in, we must talk about efforts in terms of racial and gender justice and other areas as well. I know when I first started working as a person with family members with disabilities, Disability was viewed as rather monolithic, and then we sort of expanded into mental and disability and different sorts of issues. Today, our focus, and I'm sure yours, is really the total identities of the person from an intersectional perspective. So we no longer, in our grant proposals to you, speak of disability, but we speak of multiple identities, including disability race, LGBTQ plus status, gender, of course, and so forth. Is NIDER embracing with that move towards a conception of multiple identity in the context of environment? And how is that reflected in, in what you're trying to do at NIDER? Yes, it absolutely is reflected in in so much of our day-to-day operations. So at the highest level, very early in President Biden's time in office, he signed two executive orders related to equity. And for the first time, disability was listed as one of several identities. And certainly for a long time, you know, long before that executive order existed, uh, Neidler and, and the Administration for Community Living has believed wholeheartedly in making sure that we were meeting the needs of all individuals with disabilities. However, this this call out and this nod towards the the importance of disability in relation to these other underrepresented identities is really, really important. And it really signals the the importance of these efforts. And for us within Nidler, this is something that I was able to to really build upon within, within our own grant making and our own funding opportunity developments. For example, we have criteria that has always, you know, encouraged the involvement of people with disabilities in whatever the work is that's being proposed, like all the way through from the design of the project to the conduct conducting of the said project to the dissemination of, of the work. But we also require investigators who are proposing work to describe how are you going to reach the intersectional communities of individuals with disabilities who are 
also traditionally um, underrepresented. So how are you going to reach the black and brown disabled community? How are you going to reach individuals who are disabled and, and also identify as LGBTQ? And so by calling this out as a specific element within the grant applications that, that our applicants are expected to respond to, it also helps to elevate that importance. The other piece that I think is critically important is that we must include as much as we can in terms of all aspects of disability and, and types of, of um, multiple representation of disability across the entire research enterprise. So what I mean by that is that we need to make sure that we have investigators who are black and brown and disabled, that we have investigators who are LGBTQ and disabled, um, and that we have peer reviewers who identify as people with disabilities, that we have project officers on Nidler staff that identify as people with disabilities. So all of those different groupings of identities adds to diversity of thought and allows for different perspectives of the research projects that we fund and that are carried out. And we, we really see that as fundamentally important so that we get a better understanding of the true needs of the entire disability community. Exactly. And so, for example, uh, increasingly build the capacity of historically Black colleges and universities or Hispanic university and so forth to build that next generation of multi-dimensional, multi-identity researchers, which I think is needed very much, as you say. The other big issue, of course, is uh, many people are expecting a continued mental health crisis. That word has been used as a result of the trauma that we've experienced collectively. Mental health issues are related to physical health and vice versa. Is that an area what Neidler has focused on quite a bit, this cross-disability integration? So it's not just a study on mental disability, but it's, a, again, this more intersectional, complete study. Absolutely. And, and you know, I think first and foremost, when, when I think about the work that Neidler funds, we fund work across the entire spectrum of disabilities, and that includes psychiatric disabilities, that includes mental health, that includes, of course, physical disability, intellectual disability, and any potential combination thereof. But it's also, it, it, it's also really highlighted the opportunity to strengthen relationships between Nidler and our other federal partners. So, for example, for about 30 years, Nidler has had a relationship with SAMHSA. So, which is the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services um, area within the federal government. And we are actively having communications with, with our colleagues at SAMHSA. How can we better assess the intersection of, um, of mental health conditions, whether that's mental health challenges because of the pandemic or just mental health challenges in general, as well as that with that intersection of disability. So we are very actively involved in, in these conversations and see this as being uh, certainly in an area of growth and expansion. That cross-agency fertilization is so important and can lead to so many interesting ideas as well as cost efficiencies. So everybody's working towards the same general goal. I want to take a moment, as I must, to thank our audience, our listening audience, and tell them that if they have any questions about this topic or other ADA Live topics, please submit your questions online 
at www.adalive.org or call the Southeast ADA Center at 1-404-541-9001. And now we'll take a word from this episode's sponsor. As part of the Association for Community Living, ACL, the mission of the National Institute for Disability, Independent Living, and Rehabilitation Research, NIDLER, is to generate new knowledge and to promote its effective use to improve the abilities of individuals with disabilities to perform activities of their choice in the community. NIDLER's mission is also to expand society's capacity to provide full opportunities and accommodations for its citizens with disabilities. NIDLER achieves this mission by funding research, promoting the transfer of, use, and adoption of rehabilitation technology, and ensuring the widespread distribution and usable formats of practical, scientific, and technological information. For more information about the important work of NIDLER, visit www.acl.gov. So welcome back, everybody. I'm here with Anjali, Dr. Anjali Forber-Pratt, who is the director of NIDLER. Uh, It's been a fantastic conversation. I have to ask you, since you were involved in in many sports, wheelchair racing, track, I think you also were a skier too. How did that stimulate and affect your advocacy? You touched upon it earlier. Did you, did you know at a young age that this was a path you were interested in? I did. So here's how the story goes. So I grew up in Natick, Massachusetts, which is 20 minutes west of Boston and is also affectionately known as the eight mile marker of the Boston Marathon. It wasn't until I moved out of the Boston area, out of state, where I learned that Marathon Monday was not a national holiday because growing up, everybody goes out to support the Boston Marathon and to to cheer the crowd on. One of my earliest memories was I was about five years old and was woken up early to go cheer for the runners going by. And it was the first time that I saw people in racing wheelchairs going flying by. And it was just the coolest thing. And it led to me seeing individuals like Gene Driscoll on the front page of the Boston paper, the newspapers and things like that. And it was just this really pivotal moment as a young five-year-old where I began to realize that I could live my life, disability and all, and that I could grow up to be somebody despite having a disability and that I could have, you know, this experience athletically. So I started begging and pleading my parents to pretty please get one of those really cool looking racing wheelchairs eventually was able to get one and uh, was involved with a Saturday sports clinic. So for once a week um, on a Saturday morning, about 45 minutes away from my parents' house, I got to try all different types of adaptive sports. I did fall in love with the sports with speed, wheelchair racing and downhill skiing in particular. But this was just a really, really fantastic experience because it provided me with the opportunity to meet other kids like me. So I was really, you know, in my in my home community, I was one of the only ones with a disability, with a visible disability in in my grade, you know, that that I saw on a regular basis and in and around the community. And so this gave me these these built in friends where I didn't have to explain why I used a wheelchair. I didn't have to explain the annoyances of 
of going to hospital appointments or things like that. I could just be me and have really fun time doing all of these sports. And so for me, that that early exposure to sport provided that strong sense of community. And as I encountered accessibility barriers, as I went through schooling, it gave me a support system and individuals who understood that frustration when I encountered the inaccessibility of my high school, for example, or when I encountered other other elements of, of just frustration, living life with a disability. So for me, that advocacy was really came about and, and gave me a, a sense of community because of sport. And then, of course, being able to go on to the world stage and compete and represent Team USA at the Paralympics, it just amplified that platform in a different way. So as I had, you know, successes in wheelchair racing, I was a sprinter. So 100, 200 meter, 400 meter were my my main events. But as I had success with wheelchair racing, I also had the opportunity to help to develop disability sport programs in other countries and to help individuals at the grassroots level in other countries learn about their own disability advocacy. Sport is something that is cool and and is neat to watch and can be very empowering to center the voice and the needs that people with disabilities may have in terms of barriers that they might be facing within the community. And it was just a really incredible platform to be able to to be able to engage in that advocacy work. I should say you probably know a friend of our community who I had the honor to meet, Kent Waldrop. He was a football player in Texas who was paralyzed after a football injury before the ADA. And he went on to be a, a key driver of the Americans with Disabilities Act from his athletic competitive point of view. And I believe he's, he's one of the folks who envisioned the ADA as this unified big law. So Kent, wherever you are, we're still talking about you. You talk about accessibility, but of course you're very focused on universal design as well. I'm a chair of a, a global nonprofit called the uh, Global Universal Design Commission. And we advised on building a new YMCA in Michigan. And the idea was no retrofitting, no, quote, accessibility. Everything was available to everybody. So a big iconic ramp, which is not just a wheelchair ramp, but a beautiful kind of entry ramp, greets everybody. And we did surveys and focus groups. For example, uh, people who played wheelchair basketball often brought two wheelchairs, their basketball wheelchair and their other. And it was, it was cumbersome to leave those around. And why should they? So they, there was built an accessible, universally designed locker room where all individuals could leave things, including wheelchairs, second wheelchairs. Is, is your sense that we are moving towards this concept of universal design or do we have a lot still to do? Is that an aspiration of Neidler to move in that thought way? 
Absolutely. I think that that there are so many aspects of that are connected to the principle of universal design that I believe benefit not just those within the disability community. So, you know, certainly in terms of the, the physical access examples that, that you provided, you know, the, and, I, and I wish that, that more new construction would take advantage of those principles and have them be embodied throughout. Um, but the other aspect is also around um, communication access. And so when I think of, for example, you know, closed captioning, that's something that, yes, it's greatly beneficial for individuals who who may be deaf, but it's also highly beneficial for individuals where English may not be their first language or for any individual, regardless of hearing status, if you're just in a noisy environment. Um, You know, if you're if you're out at a restaurant, for example, and back when we were able to do that pre pandemic, if you're out at a restaurant and there's there's something on the television and but it's a noisy restaurant. Well, having those closed captions on that, that benefits everyone who who's in that in that restaurant space. And so my hope is that these technologies and affordances that are often thought of as being for the disability community, if they can be adopted more broadly from a universal design perspective and be able to show the, the value added for all, it will just help to make the world more accessible for, for all. And of course, one test of that will be, as you mentioned earlier, whether a so-called silver lining of the pandemic, as my colleague Doug Cruz has said, will be that in the workplace, for example, more technology is generally accessible because it had to be, like you said early on, that you just haven't met in person some of your colleagues. Um, Absolutely. I'd like to talk for a moment about the world of work, which of course is a big area of Nidler. What's your views on, do you think that uh, we are in for a sea change as people return to work, not only in the physical and technological structure, but also more so even in the attitudinal views about life and work and about family and work and about personhood and work. It seems like it's a very important time for Neidler in that regard to to rethink what work means for all sorts of people who, who formerly have been excluded from the workplace. Absolutely. Unfortunately, as you certainly know, um, individuals with disabilities face extremely high unemployment statistics and and often are not afforded the same opportunities to just get that work experience and to get that initial foot in the door. But some of the other challenges that we've heard for a long time from individuals with disabilities are reluctance on the parts of, of some employers when it comes to flexibilities and accommodations. And one of the most commonly asked for accommodations for many within the disability community is a flexible work schedule in order to accommodate things like doctor's appointments, in order to accommodate things like like, uh, chronic pain management, in order to accommodate procedures that you might need to do that might take a little bit longer related to your own activities of daily living. And so so there's many, many reasons that individuals with disabilities might be looking for a flexible work schedule. And the pandemic has really shown the, the value of that 
that specific accommodation for so many individuals. So there's been, we've heard, you know, that there's been less resistance to to granting of that type of accommodation, again, through the, you know, the regular reasonable accommodation process and so forth in terms of requesting that. My hope is that return to office, return to workplace uh, movements are, are occurring, that we don't forget about the, the value added and the and the fact that many individuals were able to be more productive with those flexibilities, regardless of disability status, you know, being able to be present when your child is finishing up their classroom day, whether that's coming off the bus or coming off of the computer from virtual school, whatever those needs may be, that we are seeing the shift. You know, that's, a, that's really well said. I've always thought, as you have and others, that the ADA, which is a crucially important law, but it established a floor against which employers will say, okay, you can have an accommodation, you, you can't for purposes of the law. It would seem like that we might even, as we move away from accessibility towards universal design, like you say, maybe we move away from accommodation towards what do you need to be a healthy and productive employee and we will make that happen for you. Notice I didn't use the word accommodation based on your individual needs. So what is going to make you feel well and healthy and productive? And maybe that means a mental health day. Mm -hmm. Maybe that means things that were not necessarily originally thought as accommodations to make it a level playing field. But as you say, an aspect of our lives that allows us to be more productive. Is there thinking going on about that? Maybe that's beyond, well, it's certainly beyond the purview of the law, but Neidler, from an aspirational point of view, certainly can think about those things. You know, Peter, I think from myself, I'm certainly thinking of those things. I don't know, you know, in terms of where where the direction of work and so forth will go. But I also think it's fundamentally important for, uh, in, sp- in particular, for our ADA centers to also still continue to provide the, the technical support and the interpretation of what the laws and what those protections are, because we can be aspirational all day, every day. But I also know that there are, unfortunately, going to be challenges and barriers that some individuals with disabilities face in terms of accessing accommodations, in terms of having the the ability to enter the workforce. One very specific example that with this current time in in the world is that we're in such new territory with COVID-19 and particular long COVID. There are many individuals who do not realize protections that exist under the Americans with Disabilities Act for individuals with long COVID. The Department of Health and Human Services developed guidance about this, explaining that long COVID can be a disability under the Americans with Disabilities Act and under Section 504 if it substantially limits one or more major life activities. But there are many individuals who may be experiencing long COVID or employers or loved ones who do not realize this. And so this is all new. And I just applaud the work of the ADA centers as as being really integral in helping us to spread the word and to help to educate the broader American public of the existing protections that do exist. Again, that's very well said. There was a case out of Alabama, I believe, this week, which basically held that long COVID was a disability for purposes of the Americans with Disabilities Act, not only an actual disability, but a record of a disability and also perceived disability. 
Your points also with regard to the ADA are very well taken. And I must say, not a week, maybe a day that goes by where we don't get a troubling call at the ADA centers. So I guess your point is, while we can be aspirational, um, at the same time, there's a lot of work to do on a day-to-day basis. And the ADA centers, thankful to your agency, uh, try to be at the forefront of that. Well, we've had a terrific conversation. This is the kind of conversation that could go on all day. I just want to give you the chance to make any closing remarks you would. I particularly think that um, your support of the ADA centers are crucial. And uh, as you say, the ADA centers are kind of a backbone for many of the day-to-day activities that take place in our community. Do you have any final thoughts as to what we've talked about or your vision for going forward in the shorter term or longer term? You know, just a huge thank you to to you all, to all of the ADA centers, to all of the listeners who are taking an interest in these important topics. My commitment as the director of of NIDLER is to ensure that we remain as the federal go-to and leader for disability research and for the technical support related to the Americans with Disabilities Act. As we talked about, I, I certainly have goals to increase the representation of just disability in general across the you know, the entire research process and the research enterprise. And I really look towards our entire disability community to make sure that that all voices are being represented in the work that Nidler does. All means all. And I want to really make sure that that means that we're not forgetting any disabled voice in the work that we do. Well, thank you. And I, I must say for our team, this is truly a community effort, which is inspired by you all, we believe we are reflective of the community and work for the community. And it's been a terrific pleasure to speak with you today. I want to thank Barry and his team. None of this could happen without them. And uh, I want to thank our listeners as well. So Barry, I turn it back to you uh, to take over from this point and thank you all again. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Dr. Forber Pratt for being our guest today. It was a great episode. Listeners, as a reminder, if you want to learn more about long COVID or post-COVID symptoms, we urge you to tune into episode 104 of ADA Live with our guest Sharon Rennert from the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, the EEOC, discussing long COVID and its implications for work. Listeners, you can access all ADA Live episodes with archived audio, accessible transcripts, and resources at our website, adalive.org. We invite you to listen to the SoundCloud ADA Live channel at soundcloud.com forward slash ADA Live. As a reminder, you can download ADA Live to your mobile device, go to your podcast app, and search for ADA Live. If you have questions about the ADA, you can use our online form anytime at adalive.org or contact your regional ADA center at 1-800-949-4232. And as always, those calls are free and they're confidential. We also invite you to tune in to our companion podcast, Disability Rights Today. Disability Rights Today is your source for in-depth discussion on important court cases that shape the Americans with Disabilities Act. You can learn more at disabilityrightstoday.org. ADA Live is a program of the Southeast ADA Center, Burton Blatt Institute at Syracuse University. 
in a collaboration with the Disability Inclusive Employment Policy Rehabilitation Research and Training Center. Our producer is Celestia Razda with Beth Miller Harrison, Mary Mortar, Emily Ruber, Marcia Schwanke, and me, I'm Barry Whaley. Our music is from Four Wheel City, the movement for improvement. See you next episode.